Some, some through great sorrows, but God gives a song. What a great line that is. Uh, even though we may have some challenging times in our family at times, it's always good to hear a kid singing in the shower or in their bedroom or someone in the house singing. You know, if there's singing going on in the house, things can't be all that bad. And I love that, that line, God gives a song. He gives it to us. We may decide not to sing it, but he gives us a song. He gives us joy. He gives us the ability to know a freedom and a confidence that even comes in the midst of great sorrow and great suffering. And we're going to look at a passage this morning that talks about Jesus setting his face to Jerusalem, knowing that that will involve the greatest suffering anyone has ever endured. And he perseveres in the midst of it. What a, what a great privilege it is to gather like this and sing the song God gives us, even though our lives include great suffering at times. I just love this church. I'm, I'm going to miss being here as consistently as the Tanis family usually is. Some of you may know that summer for us is a great opportunity to engage and evangelize, especially I, I get to speak at Mount Hermon and Forest Home and Hume Lake a couple weeks and I'm going to be teaching in Germany and the C.S. Lewis Institute in Belfast and lots of opportunities I was calculating as I was getting dressed this morning. I think there will be almost 60 messages that I'm going to deliver this summer. So would you pray for me? <laughs> would you pray for us? It's a great opportunity and we're so thankful for it. But it means we'll be away from our church family more than we like to be. But it's also great opportunities to see, see people come to Christ, uh, preaching the gospel, helping families get established in different ways. So thank you for praying for our family as we, we venture in, in different directions this summer. Well, as I said, we're looking at an amazing passage. I am so grateful I get to preach God's word and have to discipline myself at times to get into it in depth so I have something to offer you when I get up here on Sunday mornings. And it's a wonderful discipline. I think of how less I'd be in the Word if I didn't have to come up with some sort of meal for us to enjoy this morning. And so I'm grateful once again for diving into a passage that I had some familiarity with, but now have grown greatly in my appreciation for this passage. If you'd open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, we are going to hear from Jesus this morning as he speaks to his disciples. And we need to realize that Jesus intends to speak as directly to us as he does to them in this scene. Luke chapter 9 gives us an incredible picture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and who Jesus is and what his mission was all about and therefore what our mission is all about. So as you go to the Word, let's go to the one who gave us his Word. Lord, thank you for your Word. Thank you for the privilege of being able to hold it in our hands, knowing that in it we find the words of eternal life because in it we find the one who was the Word made flesh. In it we find the one who frees us from our sin and helps us understand what it means to walk the way of the pilgrim, the way of the sojourner, the way of the one who's not home yet, 
And so, Lord, I pray that we would, because we heard from you through your word this morning and through a frail preacher, I pray that we would walk out of here with a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what he did for us and what it means to truly be one of his. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Luke chapter 9, we will read verses 51 through 62. Here we go. Luke 9, 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him. Because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? (laughs) But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those who are at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Uh, This is Jesus understanding of kingdom fitness he comes as the king the king of kings and he brings his kingdom into this world and when he does that he helps us understand what it means to truly belong to him and this is the way of kingdom fitness jesus way of kingdom fitness and i just have three points from this passage this morning one jesus crown comes through a cross two Judgment day is coming, but today is the day of salvation. And three, our crown comes through a cross as well. Our crown comes through a cross as well. The first point, Jesus' crown comes through a cross. There is so much packed in to verse 51. I want us to appreciate it. When the days drew near, Now, that may not seem like an important point to you, but what we need to see in this idea of when the days drew near, that means the days drew near for Jesus to go to Jerusalem, suffer, be crucified, rise from the dead, and ascend into heaven. When those days drew near, the things we remember during Passion Week, during Good Friday and Easter, these events of Jesus' ministry that 
are pivotal to accomplishing what he accomplished. When those days drew near, what I want to make sure we see in this is divine intention, divine planning. There are days that God has set in history in, in particular, these days are days that accomplish our salvation, our forgiveness, our redemption. There is divine intention we need to see here. Because Jesus' cross comes, uh, crown comes through a cross. So these days were approaching or they drew near. There's sovereign determination over the events of Jesus' life. These aren't random events determined just by human decision and will. No, this is sovereign determination here. These events of history. There's a divine design going on here we need to recognize. There are no accidents. God is on his throne, and he's always on his throne. In these pivotal events in redemptive history, and in every single detail and event of your life. You didn't walk in here this morning independent of God's sovereign determination. You don't, we don't do anything. Not a breath. Not a heartbeat. Nothing is outside of God's beautiful sovereign determination. The Bible says that he holds our lives and our days in his hands. And he sets forth a plan for our lives. And our lives need to be seen in light of God's sovereign determination of what's happening. And we then joyfully submit to a plan of a wise and good heavenly father, even when that plan includes great suffering. And his plan includes great suffering. And he gives us a song in the midst of it. The days drew near what? For him to be taken up or received up. Probably most specifically talking about his ascension. where When he ascends in the midst of his disciples. Ability to see him ascending. Assuring us that his humanity continues. That his life continues. He didn't just rise from the dead like Lazarus and then die again. No, he continues to live for us as a human being. And the angel tells them that as you saw Jesus go, he'll return. So it assures his second coming as well. So when the days approached of that day, of the day where he dies and rises and ascends, Jesus accelerates the process here. He recognizes those days are drawing near and he wants his disciples to know what's going on. And they're slow to learn. But he keeps teaching. And he sets his face to Jerusalem. I must tell you, I, I studied this, this Hebrew idiom, set your face, years ago. And it has become so meaningful to me. And I hope it is for you, especially after this morning. This is a powerful, it's a very Hebrew way of talking. It means set determination, especially when you're facing an incredibly challenging task. It's set determination, but, but it, it gets visual for us. It gets physical for us, like Hebrew so often wonderfully does. He sets his face to Jerusalem. Now, he may do that literally, but, but here there's this idea of, of setting your face towards something that you know is going to be challenging. It means you're determined to do this. You're set on doing this. It means you're not flaky. It means you're not fickle. It means you're not easily knocked off course. No, this is the way you've set your course and you're doing it. And Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. 
And the first thing we need to realize is that this is a way the prophets are described frequently in the Old Testament. Because think of the prophetic calling, it's incredibly challenging. You know, I've so often thought that when, when difficulty comes from outside the church, it's, it, it may be hard, but, but it's nothing like the difficulty that comes from inside the church, where you've got trust and vulnerability and interdependence. And so often the prophets had to confront sin and rebellion among the people of God. And that's not easy to do. After all, you want to be liked. You want to be popular. You want to be cool. And they set themselves up so frequently according to God's determination for their lives to be the one opposing the comfortability and idolatry among God's people. So God will come to them like he does to Ezekiel and he says, Ezekiel, I'm sending you to a hard-headed people. So your head needs to be harder than theirs. And that's what it says over and over again. Let me just read a few of them for you. Isaiah 57. The Lord God helps me, therefore I've not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. Oh, the people will heap shame on Isaiah. But he won't be deterred from it. Listen to Jeremiah 21.10. For I have set my face against this city for harm. And not for good, declares the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. Listen to Ezekiel. Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them. Set your face. Be determined in this. And if we're ever going to be these kinds of people, we need to know what God's words are and what his ways are. How can you set your face in a determined way to follow God and his ways if we don't know them? That's why we need to be people of the word. And, and, and know what he commands and know what we believe. You can't be a man or woman of conviction who sets your face to follow God and calls others to do the same if you don't know his word and his ways. We need to spend way more time in the word than on TikTok. Way more. Like way more. And I don't think the ratios are nearly where they need to be. In the frivolous pursuits we engage in constantly relative to being saturated in the scriptures. We need to be people of the word. And he sets his face like a prophet, Jesus does. Like I said, Ezekiel is commanded by God. Ezekiel 13, 17. And you, son of man, which is a way of humbling him, you mere man, set your face against the daughters of your people who prophesy out of their own minds and prophesy against them. We need to be a people who follow Jesus, who have spines of steel forged by the word of God. Not so concerned that people think we're cool that we try to sound and look just like them. And he sets his face where? To Jerusalem. Again, saturated with biblical ideas. There is a solemn mood of progress to the cross. Jesus knows what awaits him in Jerusalem is the cross upon which he will hang. 
The journey to Jerusalem is put into fifth gear here in Jesus' ministry as he now, after Peter recognizes he's the Christ, the Son of the living God, now the pace of this journey accelerates and Jesus is more and more concerned that the disciples know that his crown comes through a cross and theirs will as well. Jerusalem is over and over again highlighted for the rest of this gospel. Many times, it talks about him going to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem can be emblematic in the way it's used of the place of God's people rejecting God's prophets. Again, the same theme. Listen to what Jesus says in just a couple of chapters. In chapter 13, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem! The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. Jesus rebukes Jerusalem. Jerusalem becomes this representation of God's people rejecting God's prophets and even killing them. And this is one of these amazing realities of Jesus' kingdom. We've just got to get that Jesus' way to glory is through groaning. Jesus' way to a crown is through a cross. That Jesus' way to joy is through suffering. You know, the American church is the birthplace of the prosperity gospel, the health wealth gospel that does nothing to help people to understand the suffering that is a necessary part of life and growth as a Christian in this fallen world. Oh, one of my deepest burdens through the years here at Grace is that we are a people who are different even than many Christians in our day in our ability to understand and even lean into the suffering of life in a fallen world, but even more, the suffering that comes because we're disciples of Jesus. See, we have an added layer of suffering in our lives that people who don't belong to Jesus don't have. Jesus became poor so that we might become rich. And this contrasting picture of Jesus' greatness and his glory with his humility And his submission to God's will that includes suffering. After all, we're told that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. He's the man of sorrows, familiar with suffering and acquainted with grief. So Jesus follows the path to Jerusalem. He sets his face to head in that direction. He says this in Luke 9.22 that we just looked at previously. He says it in Luke 17.25, but first... I must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. In Luke 24, Jesus says the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day. So Jesus, with steely determination, sets his face to Jerusalem. Now what happens? He reaches out to a Samaritan people who are hated by the Jews. Hated, no doubt, by the disciples. But Jesus loves them. And a major theme of Luke, one of the main motivations for our decision to preach through this book, is that we have hearts like Jesus to reach out to people who are typically hated, are marginalized, are outside the fold, that we have a heart for the lost and the hurting 
And we move toward them like Jesus does. And this is one of the big problems Jesus has with his disciples. They hate the Samaritans and he loves them and moves, moves toward them and puts them in a very positive light. Actually, this is the only time we'll see Jesus put them in a negative light. Luke here portrays them negatively because they reject him. He sends messengers ahead of them who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because, there it is again, his face was set toward Jerusalem. So this theme of being set toward Jerusalem, now exactly what that means can be a little challenging to figure out. Why did they reject him? His face was set to Jerusalem. Why would they care? Well, they worshiped God on Mount Gerizim, not in Jerusalem, Mount Zion. They were uh, people who had intermarried and, and, and uh, had disobeyed God and were this group that were, that were worse than pagans. Because they weren't just pagans, they were Jewish, but they had, had intermingled with other pagan peoples and religion had gotten off kilter. And so they were despised. And Jesus keeps moving toward them, holding them up as people who understand often better than the Jews. And so he wants to move toward the Samaritans. And no doubt his disciples are pretty, pretty bothered by this. So when they reject Jesus, amazing advance toward them. They're especially bothered by this. And the sons of thunder, James and John, say, Lord, let's call down fire from heaven like Elijah did and the prophets of Baal and consume them. Yeah, that'll get some attention. That'll bring justice. That sounds like a good approach. And Jesus rebukes them. We don't get the details of the rebuke, but what's going on here? Well, first of all, isn't it interesting that James and John were so able to put the Samaritans in a completely different category than themselves in deserving judgment. Isn't that interesting? There's some self-righteousness going on here. but, But also what's going on here is their fail to recognize that Jesus' kingdom was being brought through Christ in his ministry, but in a way they didn't think it would be brought. It didn't come with a hammer. It came through a lamb. Now, to be sure, Jesus is coming as the judge of all the earth one day. But the thing that was so baffling to so many, including his disciples, was the first time he came, he came as a lamb. The lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, who's led to the slaughter as a sheep who doesn't even open his mouth. He comes the first time. Mild he lays his glory by born that man no more may die he's born in a manger he's born in the least impressive ways a king could ever come and that's how he comes and it's baffling to them and so jesus is coming as a judge but here he's saying to them and to us well judgment day is coming and i want you to relate to the martyrs in revelation who know the rightness of that We're crying out to God, how long, Lord, do we have to wait before you judge the wicked? How long, Lord, before the blood of the martyrs is vindicated? We know the rightness of judgment. And something in us should long for that judgment. I do on a daily basis, sometimes a bit too much, and I think I'm a little bit too much like James and John. Especially when someone does something to me. But it's the, God, the, the honor of Christ, the glory of God being defamed that should especially bother us. 
in this world. And there's something so right about saying, Lord, judgment day seems to be taking too long. The martyrs in Revelation talk that way. But what he's saying to us is judgment day is coming, but today is the day of salvation. Now is the time for mercy. Now is to plead with people to flee the wrath to come. It's on hold. And that's awesome because it's on hold first for us who had time to repent. And now our job is to call those Samaritans, he's saying to his disciples, and the people in our lives to repentance, to flee the wrath to come that is sure to come one day. Jesus is calling us. If you've got some of that sons of thunder in you who want instant judgment now, he's saying, I love your zeal, but it's misguided. It's mistimed. They recognize their authority that they're gaining in Jesus through their association with him, and they don't seem to recognize their own need for judgment, and they are too quick to want judgment to come now, realizing that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And he rebukes them. He says, no, now is the time to offer hope. Now is the time to offer ourselves. Today's the day of salvation. To reject Jesus will bring judgment. But they needed to realize that this was the phase of Jesus' ministry that's focused on the cross where he gives his life as the Lamb of God. We are to warn of judgment, but not revel in it. And we want to point people to the way out of judgment in our lives. Do you have people in your life who you think are beyond God's grace? Who you have nothing but imprecatory psalms for? Nothing but bring down judgment. I have someone in my family during, there was someone in my family who loved Madonna. And she, she was just influencing this person in my family very much. And she dressed like Madonna. She acted like Madonna. She, Madonna was her hero. And this was a particular phase of Madonna's ministry that was just, a, yeah, as if there were some that were just great. But anyway, um, actually, I'm, she's got an amazing voice, don't get me wrong, but, and brilliant in recreating herself for whatever is, she's brilliant, yeah, in that way. But, uh, this person in my family so hated how much this person was influencing, being influenced by Madonna, that, that every day she would pray, Lord, please save Madonna. Or kill her. <laughs> and we had lots of discussions about that prayer and the rightness of the second part, but the wrongness of the second part as well, this side of Judgment Day. Madonna, if you're listening, I love you, and I would love to have lunch and talk about Jesus. I really would. Do you have anyone in your life who you think is outside of God's grace, outside of his reach, outside of his love? Well, then repent. Repent of your own self-righteousness, thinking that you were closer to God than anyone before he made you his own. Uh, repent of the lack of compassion that Jesus is rebuking his disciples for here that I can so often lack. And so, Jesus is saying, this isn't that time yet. It's not that time. 
So, here rejection doesn't kill the promise. These people reject him, but it doesn't stop the progress to salvation. And so this means we follow him too. Rejection keeps going. It it doesn't stop it from happening. And we need to realize that for those of us who follow God, those of us who belong to Jesus, following Jesus means our crown comes through a cross as well. Listen to how Jesus describes discipleship. He sets his face to Jerusalem, and he keeps going, and along the way, people come to him promising great devotion to him, but he doesn't have any fine print. I love this about God. I love this about Jesus. There's very little that bothers me more in life than somebody trying to trick me with some sort of subterfuge and and not being straight. I, I just... Even if you say really mean things to me, but you're being straight with me, I'm good. But i got to tell you, in life, when people aren't shooting straight, when they're not telling me the truth, when they're playing games, that's what bothers me. And Jesus never does that. Jesus, he's not some shady salesman trying to trick you. He tells it like it is. And so people come up and they say, hey, I'll follow you. I'll follow you anywhere. And Jesus says, oh, you do realize I'm homeless, right? I I just want to make sure you know, in your eagerness, that from day to day, I have nowhere to lay my head. I'm a homeless man. Now, Now, that's true literally for Jesus, especially during his public ministry, many times. But I think there's something deeper going on here. This is more a description of Jesus is the one who came to his creation to redeem it, and his creation rejected him, kicked him out of the house. This is more an image of Jesus who's described this way in John 1. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus, although he was rich, became poor, so that in his poverty we might become rich. That's every kind of poverty. Jesus' entire life was a life of poverty, a a, a kind of homelessness. His own people rejected him. He came to those who were his own, and his own did not receive him. Even the first day after he was born on this earth wasn't in a home. There was no room for him in the inn. A historical fact, but a powerful spiritual image as well. He's the homeless man. When you follow Jesus, you raise your hand and sign up to follow a homeless man. Think about that next time you see a homeless man. We we follow someone who defies all the world's expectations of what power looks like, what significance looks like, of what meaning looks like in this world. Jesus is the one who suffered, and he calls his people to do the same. Following Jesus means our crown comes through a cross as well. Kingdom fitness comes through suffering for us as well. 
We're his followers, and we follow him on that path to Jerusalem as well. Now, what's so important here is that we start not with Jesus as our example in the journey, but as our substitute in the journey. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. We don't start by following Jesus. We start by depending on Jesus. That's why Jesus followers sort of replacing Christian in a lot of the vernacular today is a bit concerning to me because before we're followers, we're dependers. Before we follow Jesus in the journey, we completely rely on him going that journey ahead of us and completing it perfectly. That's got to be where we start. And so Jesus is both our substitute in the journey and our example in the journey as well. Here's how one preacher puts it. When Jesus set his face to walk the Calvary road, he was not merely taking our place. He was setting our pattern. He is substitute and pace setter. He's our savior and our example. Oh, our salvation is complete in Christ. Our justification is complete in Christ. Our forgiveness is complete in Christ. But true discipleship means total devotion. Jesus isn't mincing words about that. This man comes and he says, I'll follow you. And he says, but you do realize I'm homeless. And another one comes. And Jesus says, follow me. And he says, you know, let me bury my father first. I don't think his father had died and he just needed to attend the funeral. I think what's going on here is he's saying, just let me take care of my family until my father dies and then I bury him and then I'll go. Who knows how long that might take. He's coming to Jesus with an agenda. He's coming to Jesus with, with a job description. He's coming to Jesus with details of how he's going to follow him instead of letting Jesus set the entire agenda. He's coming to him, telling him that he's going to do it his way. And that's not how somebody truly comes to Jesus. Listen to Romans eight seventeen. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. Kenny read this. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Glory. Then it says, provided we suffer with him. It's amazing how often we'll quote that passage and stop before that. Provided we suffer with him. Oh, please don't think you get all these benefits and completely avoid all the suffering that comes with being a disciple provided we suffer with him, in order that we may be glorified with him. You see, our glory, our crown, comes through suffering as well. It comes through the Calvary way as well. And so Jesus is saying, count the cost. You know, the second example is very similar to the first. Let the dead bury their dead. But we're about proclaiming the words of eternal life. We're bringing life through the good news of Jesus to to our world, he says, that's what I want you to do. Let the spiritually dead, he's saying, take care of the spiritually dead. But our job is to bring people to spiritual life through what? Proclaiming the kingdom of God. Another says, I'll follow you, Lord. Let me say farewell to my home. And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is about kingdom fitness. This is about being fit for the kingdom, being rightly designed, organized, prepared, uh, positioned, equipped to be someone who follows Jesus. Jesus' earthly life is a progressive and continual descent into humility and suffering. 
And he says, look, my way has a lot of difficulty in it, a lot of challenges. The Christian life has never been complicated, but it's never been easy either. No small print with Jesus. He expects his disciples to be like him, and he wants them to know it will cost them greatly. It may be all kinds of things, finances. It may be reputation. It may be relationships. I know there are plenty of you in here who have lost friends and even family members because of your commitment to Christ. And that's part of the deal. Jesus promised it would be. Jesus says my way is difficult and suffering is part of the deal. And we need to understand that. And we need to not look back. And he says, don't delay, but proclaim the truth. Jesus demands unreserved devotion. And even at times what is considered antisocial or unpopular or in a world that's so twisted, sometimes pursuing goodness and righteousness is considered evil and immoral. And vice versa. So who will we be? We need to be people who don't ask, how much can I get, but how much can I give? Who don't ask, what's the safest thing, but what's the right thing? Who don't ask, what's wrong with this decision, but what's the best decision? We need to be people who ask, not what is the easy way, but what is the holy way? Not what is the most natural way to live, but what's the way to live that will require God's empowering presence? Those are the sorts of questions we need to ask. And we shouldn't look back. You know, it's amazing to me. You know, two of my kids, three of my kids drive now. And they, it's like having a cop in the car. It's like they're, they're driving instructors now. Dad, you changed lanes too quickly there. Dad, you really changed two lanes at once. That's, that's right. You didn't get, there's a four second, you got to count one, one thousand, two. Come on, Dad. And I'm like, get out, get out of the car. I, I can't stand this. <laughs> But it's just, it's just amazing how legalistic they are about these things. But it, it, it is amazing that I, I'm a very curious person, and I want to read billboards and, and all sorts of things. And it's amazing how when I look, invariably, I head that way. Dad! Oh, sorry. I was very interested in what that bumper sticker said, right? And, and, and it's amazing that what you set your face toward is where you invariably head. And if you're plowing, if you're in an agrarian, Dave Peters gets this. If you're plowing and you take one of your hands off the plow, you're going to veer away from the course you're trying to set. He's saying, look, disciples set their faces and they don't keep looking back. Like the Israelites when they left Egypt. Talk about idiocy. We had it so good in Egypt. What? You know, like Lot's wife looking back at Sodom. We have this instinct to look back even from horrible things we've come from. It's just amazing. Ask somebody who lived in, in immorality in Sodom for a long time and they'll tell you that looking back is foolish. Grass isn't greener on the pagan side. They'll tell you the truth. You can't plow a straight row if you aren't looking forward. Second-guessing constantly, living in the past, longing for the past when it wasn't God and his ways, is, is lacking productivity and joy. We need to be fit and suitable and useful for the kingdom. It's been said the Christian marches to the dawn, not the sunset. 
So if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus, I want to ask you, why not? What way have you chosen? How's it working out for you? I would love to have a conversation with you. People will be praying up here after. Would love to be praying for you. I've, I've laid out, I try to be faithful to Jesus as a really hard idea of what it means to be a Christian. But what you need to know is in the final analysis, we will have not sacrificed one thing. When all is said and done, we will look back and say, that slight momentary affliction that came with being a follower of Jesus was just storing up for us an eternal weight of glory that, that Paul says isn't even worth comparing the weightiness of the glory to the weightiness of the suffering. He says, just get rid of your calculator. It's not worth trying to figure out if it's worth it. It's so worth it. It's absurd to even make the calculation. Following Jesus brings freedom and abundant life. Yes, even in the suffering that we can rejoice in our suffering. We have the ability to grieve with gr deep grief, but with hope. Unlike people who don't know Christ. If you are a Christian, let's take to heart this call to a kind of discipleship that sets our face to following Jesus. Not when it's easy, not when it's convenient, not when it happens to fit in our otherwise busy schedule, but pursuing the things that Jesus says are at the heart of what it means to be his followers. And we all fail. Know that we all fail in this. Peter failed miserably. Denied Jesus three times. He didn't set his face in those challenging moments. But Jesus forgave him. And there was grace for all the failures. You know what Satan will do? He'll take your failures and he'll keep throwing them up in your face. And he'll say, you call yourself a disciple. But one of the ways we suffer is to continue to lean in into our failures in a freedom that comes through repentance and laying them at the feet of Jesus. And so we keep going. You know how often the Bible's basic message is, keep going. Fight the good fight of faith. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Uh, pursue the upward call in Christ Jesus. Keep going. It'll all be worth it. I promise that's what Jesus says. And don't focus on what you leave because ultimately you'll sacrifice nothing. It's not an easy calling to follow Jesus, but it's always worth it. If Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, we need to gather here like this to help each other go one more week with our faces set to Jerusalem. And week after week with our faces set to Jerusalem like flint against the allurements of riches and retaliation and scorn in this world, we follow the King of Kings on the road to Jerusalem, on the way to Calvary. Now, I was thinking about the way this road is often portrayed. And it's so often portrayed dramatically. Like Jesus, it was dramatic. The Passion Week was dramatic. And for the disciples, they all died as martyrs except one. It was dramatic. But you know, for most of us, it's not. It's not dramatic. It's so daily and mundane most of the time. Dealing with whatever challenges God has on our plates today. Yesterday, if you weren't here for Jerry Wyrick's memorial service, uh, it was incredible. We remembered a woman who didn't die a martyr. 
This is Jerry and Dell. There was some, some of her crew over here. She didn't die a martyr. You know, if you're going to write Jerry's biography, you need to sort of tell him in the preface, don't expect lots of drama here. Just lots of faithfulness. Lots of daily dying to self, taking up her cross and following her Savior. Jerry came to Christ when she was 16 at a Billy Graham crusade, and she died that day. She didn't die past September, December. She's alive more than she's ever been. She died as a 16-year-old when she died with Christ through saving faith and was raised to walk in newness of life with him. And one day she will be raised from the dead. But she's with him now, enjoying the presence of her Savior, unencumbered by the sin and suffering of this world. But I was thinking of Jerry's example in the midst of how often we think, you know, I love missionary biographies, but they, they can give us this idea that Christian life is constantly lived under threat of being stabbed to death. I've never had that one, not for my Christian faith, for maybe other reasons, but, but, uh, but most of us, uh, even the Ardells, Ardells, is, life as a missionary, even in a really tough place, mostly dramatic, what, it, what is it mostly? Changing diapers. Yeah. Yeah. Doing, doing life, right? So, so Jerry, I, can we see this next picture of Jerry? Did we, we're able to get that, Chloe? I love this picture. So Del and Jerry retired. You know what they did in their retirement? They went to the mission field. This is Jerry peeling potatoes on one of the mercy ships in her retirement years. She's dying to self. She's taking up her cross daily. And for her, on this day, it meant peeling hundreds of potatoes. What do you think it means to be a disciple of Jesus? It, it takes a dailiness to it. One of the stories is Colleen. Colleen, are you here? She'll be in second service. She usually, she usually is. Colleen told a story. She got a job years ago. And Jerry was a dear friend to Colleen. And Colleen's job was causing her, her hands to, to crack and, and get very dry, and they were painful. And she came in, and she sat behind Jerry that's one Sunday. And, and during the service, Jerry just reaches back and hands her this jar of ointment. And she said after... I heard this is really good ointment, and it'll help your hands. I was so moved by that. See, that's what disciples do. It's, it's not dramatic. It's not going to get in a, a biography as this amazing story we tell. But we need to tell these kinds of stories more. Carrie wrote an amazing eulogy of her, of her mom, Carrie Weirich, that, that just talked about the kind of wife and mother and grandmother, and aunt she was, and church member she was, and we can testify that for over 20 years, she was setting a pace most of us couldn't even think of keeping up with, in loving people, and serving people, and laying down her life in self-sacrificial ways, in countless ways that almost never got noticed by anybody but the person she was serving, and God himself. So let's not turn being a disciple into just dramatic displays. It's mostly not that. 
It's, it's resting in Jesus' finished work and then following him down that path to Jerusalem with our faces set, not constantly looking back through distraction and idolatry. 